This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi everyone and welcome to World to Win. Of course, uh, before we start, make sure that you're subscribed to our channel and also that you are subscribed to us on all podcast platforms as well because uh, we're putting our episodes on there as well. And as you can tell, today we're trying something a little yeah. bit different. I've got Dara here with me. Uh, we're actually neighbors now, yeah. so uh, we tried to we, we we want to try and see uh, how we can do well to win a bit differently today. So uh, how are you doing, Dara? Not bad, not bad. Good to um, be in the new place. Yeah. I I dodged the bullet in helping you um, <laughs> under get some of your furniture set up, but uh, yeah, nice to finally be here in the new studio. Yeah, there's uh, now gonna be the well to win studio. And I'm also going to apologize in advance if you can hear my cat who is munching on all the cardboard boxes. So uh, that's, uh, that's another thing that's uh, happening. Um, but what are we going to talk about today, Darren? Well, yeah, today um, we're going to be talking about historic elections that re- happened there a number of weeks ago, uh, particularly in Northern Ireland, um, and what these reflect in terms of both historic crisis of capitalism and some general trends in so- society of the flaring up of the national question, the potential for sectarian division. We're also going to put this in the context of broader struggles uh, that are taking place as well, and the potential for more uh, workers' unity and significant struggles to take place as well. So to discuss this, we're going to be joined by two very special guests from Northern Ireland. We have, first of all, Chris Stewart, who's a trade unionist with Unite Hospitality and also a member of the Socialist Party in Northern Ireland. How are you doing, Chris? How are you? What have you been up to in the recent period? Hi, I'm Granda. How are you doing, Dara? Um, just recovering really from our, our election campaign, obviously, which we're going to be discussing here a bit. But yeah, just just uh, enjoying the rest after what was a pretty grueling campaign, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. Good stuff. And then we're talk- now we're going to be talking, also going to be talking to Amy Ferguson, a guest we've had on the show before. Amy was proudly one of our uh, candidates in Northern Ireland who ran a really excellent campaign that we will be delving into in further detail, but is also uh, a trade unionist doing trailblazing work with Unite Hospitality. Uh, so how are you doing, Amy? How are you? What have you been up to in the recent period? Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I've been been good. Uh, similar to Chris, working away, but also kind of recovering from the elections and also actually starting to meet up with uh, a lot of people who heard about us during the election campaign. They want to get involved. So that's pretty exciting as well. Great to hear. Um, so let's dive straight into it then. Um, these elections, you know, of course, we'd often say they're not the be all and end all, but I think election results do and the, the dynamic of the campaign kind of give us a, a snapshot into society, the different moods, the different trends. Uh, so what would you say were some of the dominant uh, issues of this and what were some of the key takeaways from the results of these elections? Yeah, well, in reality, this election kind of marks a, a, a new stage in, in the crisis of the so-called uh, peace process in Northern Ireland, which began in, in 1998 uh, with the Good Friday Agreement that, that brought an end to the, the, the Troubles. Um, and while, you know, that agreement brought an end to the daily violence of, of the Troubles, in reality, it didn't solve any of the, the divisions within society here. Um, in fact, it merely institutionalized those divisions. Uh, for example, there's more so-called peace walls, which are walls that literally divide unionist and nationalist communities uh, today than, than there ever were during the Troubles. Um, uh, uh, as well as that, 
71% of people um, in society want there to be integrated education, but only 7% uh, of students go to integrated schools and, and schooling and education is still deeply segregated here. Um, and the overarching process of, of the decades since the Good Friday Agreement has been toward a digging in of uh, sectarian division uh, and the growth of the more hardline parties of unionism and nationalism, uh, the DUP and Sinn Féin, uh, respectively. Um, and this election was mostly thought as a battle uh, between those two parties uh, to see who got the first minister position, which which goes to the largest uh, party. Um, interestingly, kind of despite being in government for, for nearly a, a quarter of a century um, and consistently implementing attacks on working class people, uh, Sinn Féin's main slogan during the campaign was vote for a real change, uh, which is kind of ironic, um, and near the end of the campaign uh, to vote for a, a first minister for everyone. But really it, it wasn't their campaigning uh, that, that led to what ended up being a, a, a electoral success for Sinn Féin. It was actually the approach of, of the DUP, which was seen as intransigent uh, amongst many many Catholics that kind of gave uh, Sinn Féin its, its, its victory. Um, because before this election, uh, the DUP faced significant opposition within the Unionist community uh, due to their previous support for the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is part of the UK's Brexit withdrawal agreement, um, which basically implements uh, a customs checks on, on some goods traveling between uh, Northern Ireland and the rest of, of the UK. Um, a sort of anger at the protocol emerged within the unionist community. It was seen as creating a border in the in the Irish Sea, cutting Northern Ireland off from the rest of the UK. Um, so the DUP kind of faced opposition from a small but more hardline loyalist party called uh, the TUV, the Traditional Unionist Voice, on, on this issue. And they sort of scrambled to take an anti-protocol position. So before the election, they collapsed the government um, and uh, in the lead up to it and said that they wouldn't enter government until this protocol was scrapped. Um, and in the election, the DUP lost, I think, about 6.7% of its vote. Um, but actually, before it was projected to do much worse than that, so that actually represents something of a recovery from uh, the, the polling before the election. And primarily, they lost votes to that, that TUV party, which received 65,000 votes in the election, um, uh, including challenging for some, some seats. Um, and this has been sort of a, an important pressure on the DUP. Um, uh, and really, the, the, the sort of um, uh, uh, this pressure will only kind of in intensify uh, going forward. Um, uh, any, if anything, the, the crisis facing this this peace process as well will will only in intensify. Sort of key loyalist figures in in the Orange Order have said that unionism has has a mandate not to join the executive and to to sort of um, ensure that the government cannot function. The DUP have said they won't elect a, a speaker or, or a, a deputy first minister until the protocol is, is dealt with. Um, yeah, meaning n none of the political institutions can, can function now. Um, yeah, um, but of course it wasn't just the sectarian dynamic that, that dominated in this election. Uh, the cost of living crisis uh, uh, that is facing all working class people was also a, a significant uh, issue throughout the election. Uh, and it was clear that none of the political parties uh, uh, provide any solution. Um, there's a lot of disillusionment, I think, from working class people about the ability of the political parties to actually solve this crisis. Um, and so while the, the, the results of the election do not immediately reflect it, there is real frustration amongst working class people um, at the main parties that, that is really felt in society. And we definitely saw that throughout our campaigning work. Um, and it's telling in a sense that all of the, the parties kind of had to shift at a certain point 
their communication strategy throughout the election to talk more about the cost of living because it really reflects the 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 um the, the pressure and the the anger that is bubbling up uh, amongst working class people uh, on this issue yeah and i think you know one of the main things that was so kind of obvious and glaring about this election is that for the first time in the 101 years of northern ireland being like uh, uh, a thing <laughs> uh, we saw Sinn Féin getting the majority of uh, of uh, the seats which is uh, kind of unheard of obviously Sinn Féin is a nationalist party which uh, means it's uh, on the Republican side on the uh, on the Catholic side of the national divide um, and that has never happened before and in fact there was a, a BBC commentator that actually said which is very unusual for the BBC to admit anything yeah. like that um, that uh, Northern Ireland as a state was literally designed to prevent this from happening. So I was wondering if you guys can explain to us what is the design? Why was, what, what, what was uh, Northern Ireland designed to prevent from doing and why that was the case? Yes, so um, the, Northern, the Northern state came into existence about hundred, well, just over a hundred years ago now, um, by the partitioning of the island in 1921. Um, now, partition wasn't an inevitable thing. It wasn't like an inevitable reflection of, you know, community divides or um, even disputes within the the Republican um, uh, w- within Republican politics. But actually, it constituted quite a conscious effort on behalf of the British ruling class to counteract a really big and growing radical labour movement, which was uniting uniting Catholic and Protestant working class people in struggles for their shared interests. So uh, at one point, for instance, in 1919, there was like over 100,000 workers engaged in the engineering strike. During that strike uh, for about four weeks, um, the working class were in control of of Belfast, the the, the city, and that includes they controlled who uh, got electricity, who didn't. They include the printing presses. Uh, just in the years before that, in 1906, there was tens of thousands of young women workers out on strike for a pay rise. That was spontaneous action. In 1907, again, there was hundreds of th- like over 100,000 workers on the street, both Catholic and Protestant, um, in a struggle for, for pay rises. And that dispute itself also uh, led to police mutiny at one point. So that was the context of partition. You know, there was a really revolutionary movements in Ireland, actually North and South, and British imperialism really feared that its rule was going to be challenged. And beyond that, if its rule was challenged in Ireland, which was one of its strongholds, that would have, you know, really detrimental impact for it across its empire. Joe, you know, at one point, there was communication between uh, the British state and unionist, the unionist establishment, like the unionist politicians, who even said that actually the biggest problem, the biggest threat facing the union right now was Bolshevism, it was socialism, because because, you know, the majority of working class people, especially uh, a lot of working class Protestants, were actually uh, turning away from the unionists and nationalist parties and looking towards labour, looking towards the trade unions. Um, so in that context, the uh, British imperialism acted to divide that union movement, uh, trade union movement, and to divide the uh, by dividing the island in two, it created two sectarian states, one in the south that was dominated by the Catholic Church and one in the north, which was ultimately set up as like a Protestant state for Protestant people, um, and which in the context of 
you know, deep poverty for working class people in general. It particularly discriminated against ordinary Catholics in terms of jobs and housing prospects. Um, and it ultimately wanted a unionist state with a minority Catholic population so it could continue this policy of divide and rule so it could obscure these class interests that working class people were coming together on. Um, and obviously since then we've had the civil rights uh, struggle, we've had the troubles, the peace process, but a unionist party has all had always remained the largest party in the in the assembly until this election. Um, and, you know, Chris pointed to some of the reasons that Sinn Féin were able to win this position, including the, the uh, splintering of, of unionism. And as well, there's been an under uh, underlying process of demographic changes in the north where um whilst protestants used protestants used to make up a, a huge majority this is actually ra uh, rapidly in decline um but it should be noted as well and like whilst it is important that we recognize that this is a historic change and um, whilst the dup isn't the largest party instrument unionism is actually still the largest designation in the assembly still and yeah uh, we also have to say that like again whilst it's historic this election isn't actually going to resolve anything even if the DUP UP return to the executive, it's still going to be more of the, the same pro-capitalist sectarian parties running the show. And again, as opposed to resolving things, we're actually seeing that uh, deeper crisis at the heart of the peace process where the contradictions that were with it, that were placed within the Good Friday Agreement are coming to a fore and, and challenging the stability of the capitalist institutions and of bourgeois democracy in the North as, as a whole too. Yeah, thanks very much, Jamie. You mentioned um, in the past the interests of British imperialism, how it cut across this developing revolutionary movement in Ireland quite consciously as an age-old tactic of divide and conquer. And I think if you look across the world today, the various sectarian conflicts, um, ethnic division, and I think a lot of it can be traced back to the crimes of British imperialism. But British imperialism is in a very different state today than it was back then. And I think if you look at the not just what's happened in Northern Ireland, but also several crises that are involved, constitutional crisis, undermining the basic integrity of capitalism's oldest state. We have uh, the prospect of a second referendum on independence in Scotland, uh, which uh, support for independence, you know, consistently over 50%. But also, I think one time during COVID last year, we had support for Welsh independence at an all-time high of 30%. So in that context, what do you think the response uh, of British imperialism will be to these elections? How have they reacted? And what are some of the broader geopolitical implications that this result will have? Yeah, I think definitely this is a, a significant political crisis uh, for, for, the, for the Tories and the, and the British ruling class uh, more generally. And in a sense, the Tory government is, is kind of caught between uh, competing pressures here, you know. Um, First of all, it's important to note that the Tory government and the Tory party uh, more generally seem to be split on, on this issue, which I think reflects the, the crisis of British capitalism uh, more more generally. Um, uh, the Tories have responded to the constitutional crisis in, Nor uh, in the north of Ireland um, by uh, agreeing to unilaterally change the, the Northern Ireland pro protocol, uh, which I mentioned before. Uh, Boris Johnson has repeated that uh, every unionist that was elected in, in this election stood kind of unambiguously on an anti-protocol position uh, and their move against the protocol really reflects the pressure that they feel in this regard. Um, and whereas in the past, uh, like uh, the, the more recent past, 
Northern Ireland has not had the same strategic importance for British imperialism that that it would have had uh, in the twentieth century. Um, you, you know, as you mentioned, the the context of growing aspirations for for Scottish independence and not not even uh, uh, Welsh independence as well now threatens a kind of a broader breakup of the UK. So in this context, uh, anything that can destabilize things in Northern Ireland, including a move towards a border pull, uh, will likely be resisted by the British uh, government. Um, but on the other hand, there's a section of the Tories, uh, apparently including uh, Rishi Sunak, who were opposed to the unilateral uh, changing of, of the protocol, which is going ahead now. Uh, and this is because this, this really threatens to create a new confrontation uh, with the European Union, uh, the, the Irish government and US imperialism uh, as well. Um, and as has already been indicated by, by the EU, uh, this could result in the emergence of a, of a trade war between the UK and the European Union. Uh, and in the context of a broader economic crisis of capitalism and a slide uh, back into to, to global recession, this could really have far-reaching implications uh, in that sense. And it also comes at a time when all the forces of Western imperialism uh, have been trying to present a sort of united front in the face of the war in, in Ukraine. Um, and this really could threaten to undermine that in a sense as well. So the fallout of this election is likely uh, to continue for some time and it's not immediately clear how things will unfold um, and I think it's also worth mentioning that all of these forces whether it's the Stormont parties the Irish government the British government the EU or the US they're intervening in, in Northern Ireland in the interests of, of the capitalists that they represent not in the interests of working class people in the north of Ireland um, and as such they have the potential to really further inflame sectarian tensions at, at certain points um, for example, even just the other day, a U.S. congressman, uh, Richard Neal, uh, uh, you know, in, in attempting to sort of diplomatically intervene on the question of the protocol and so on, referred to the unionist population here as, as planters, which has sparked absolute outrage. You know, so that's just one example of, of the, the sort of ham-fisted approach of, of these different imperialist forces that, that, that can really inflame tensions here, you know. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, like when we talk about this and obviously talking about the collapse and crumbling down of British imperialism is always a fun thing to talk about. <laughs> um, but I think it's also like what you said is really important that we can't forget that it's not just British imperialism that is the problem. Of, of course, it's a huge problem, <laughs> but it's, it's not like, uh, you know, the Irish government is less capitalist or under an Irish government, uh, even, uh, you know, Catholics uh, in Northern Ireland will have a better, uh, a better situation. So yeah, like it's really important that we kind of clarify that it's not like the Irish government is, you know, the solution to all of the problems. We're talking about crises uh, that beyond just Britain um, and are impacting everyone around the world, really, because of the system that we live in, because of capitalism. But then I think that we have these big winners of this election, Sinn Féin, which I think, you know, I don't know, obviously, coming from Ireland, I'm sure you have uh, a lot of opinions no. <laughs> about Sinn Féin. I mean, it is, it is incredible just how, um, you know, talking to people from the US or, or elsewhere, uh, how that image of them being like quite a radical left party or even a socialist party. Yeah, I know you were in Ireland, uh, in Dublin for elections there, where there's a bit of a Sinn Féin surge and I don't know the impression you got when you were talking to ordinary people and their impressions of, of them. Yeah, it was, it was kind of incredible to see because uh, um, I think, you know, coming from another place that has a big national question, um, 
it, it's it's kind of like a sentiment that is very recognizable i think that uh, kind of the uh, representatives of the oppressed are considered to be very much on the left even if it's not necessarily the case and i think maybe in israel palestine it's much more glaring um that some of the uh, parties representing the oppressed are not actually on the left and are not actually in the like working in the interests uh of you know the working class people of either community really um which i think is also always a complicated question right because we always uh, do want to stand behind the oppressed but the question is how do you actually stand behind the oppressed and i'm not sure what you guys think about Sinn Féin and do you think that Sinn Féin is like this this party of the left that's like rad radical force on the left that's supporting the working class or is it you know a party that is maybe gain that uh, imp impression on the international left but isn't necessarily what it is yeah, I mean, definitely, like, with the with the surge of Sinn Féin in the South in this election, um, I've seen a lot, like, on social media and, and beyond of a lot of international leftists sort of celebrating Sinn Féin and celebrating this as a victory. And I suppose it's particularly jarring for us as, you know, people who've had to actually live through the consequences of Sinn Féin's time in government in the North. Um, but I can see, you know, probably why from afar they would seem particularly appealing to, to young leftists. I mean, in the South, they've made moves in recent years to sort of pose themselves as a left opposition to the government parties. They talk about or pay lip service to the, the question of the housing crisis and building public homes and the question of tackling the cost of living crisis and stuff. But unfortunately, as I said, like their track record in the North actually paints a very different picture. I mean, first of all, Sinn Féin are a sectarian party. They base themselves essentially exclusively on one side of the community in, in Northern Ireland. And actually, a few years ago in North Belfast, they were even so brazen in doing so that they printed leaflets, essentially implying that the, demograph the demographic era uh, the demographic makeup of the area was a, was one that basically they were saying like basically if all Catholics were on their best behavior and voted Sinn Féin they could get an MP like they were that brazenly sectarian you know um, and it's 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 just one example of them frequently and consistently relying on these divisive narratives during the elections. And it's both the Sinn Féin, both Sinn Féin and the DUP who are actually reliant on whipping up these narratives, especially during election time, to obscure those uh, class interests and protect their, their voter base. Um, yet, uh, outside of election time, it's Sinn Féin um, are actually united with the likes of the DUP and Alliance in actually implementing the likes of Tory welfare reform in the North. Um, which has had devastating impacts on working class communities and it's left those you know most vulnerable on the poverty line and it's left the welfare services you know pretty unfit for purpose at council levels as well they've been involved in voting to sell public land to private developers they've enacted cuts on local community services like youth groups like hospitals and even actually Irish language facilities too um, and they've been championing, championing beyond that as well they've been championing for a long time the lowering of corporation tax obviously at a time when multinational profits have never been higher they argue for a all Ireland 12.5% tax, which is actually even lower than corporation tax in the UK. And Ireland, as it stands, is already a tax haven for huge uh, companies. And I think it was telling that Owen O'Brien, who is 
one of the most prominent figures in Sinn Féin in the South and is um, associated with the, the progressive side of Sinn Féin in terms of their uh, programme on housing. He even said himself that multinationals have, quote, nothing to fear from a government led by his party. Um, and, you know, that's that's shocking. Like, multinationals should be shaking in their boots right now, right, amid, whilst the working class movement rebuilds itself. That's the side that so-called pro-left part or so-called socialists or left parties should be assisting right now. They shouldn't be telling multinationals not to worry. They should be telling multinationals here, you should be worrying, you know. Um, and whilst they as well celebrate, one thing Sinn Féin hold over the DUP is that they are, uh, you know, more progressive on social issues like marriage equality like abortion rights, but it should be remembered actually that they were also dragged kicking and screaming to those positions um, by movements of ordinary working class people. And even then, uh, their position actually on abortion rights is actually pretty shaky. So um, even last year when the DUP put forward a bill in the Northern Irish Assembly to restrict abortion access down to cases of uh, fatal fetal um, impairment, Sinn Féin actually abstained on that bill, which allowed it to, to pass. And this is actually pretty unsurprising considering their, that's, that's essentially the stance of their party. And actually in the local by-election where my Sinn Féin MP was elected, she even openly said that Sinn Féin only supported abortion rights in very limited circumstances, so they're saying it themselves. So yeah, essentially on a, a lot of questions, there's an absolute gulf between how Sinn Féin present themselves and their actual actions when they are in positions of power. Yeah, and as well as that, uh, this election also saw like a, a significant growth for the Alliance Party, which is like a liberal party uh, that doesn't designate as unionist or nationalist and sort of poses itself as being a cross-community party. Um, they more than doubled their seats uh, in, in this election. This was most pronounced in, in kind of Protestant middle-class areas, which are pro-union, but also voted against uh, Brexit. But the vote did increase uh, across the board as well. Um, and I think there's a small section, uh, maybe mostly of young people, who may look to Alliance as uh, sort of an alternative, you know, to the to the orange and green parties. Uh, but in reality, uh, Alliance are perhaps the most nakedly neoliberal party, and they have consistently supported austerity, cut in corporation tax, uh, as well as things like regressive water charges that would harm working class people. And even on international issues, I mean, recently, uh, the representatives were, were very openly supporting the idea of a no-fly zone uh, uh, over Ukraine as well, you know. Their political platform generally is one of, of poverty for workers and, and free reign for capitalists to, to profiteer. Um, and on this basis, the divisions within our society will never be solved, you know. So while there may be some young people who maybe just see them as, as a viable alternative in some sense, I don't think it really reflects deeper illusions in their ideas or their record, you know. Thanks, Chris. Um, just to go back to Sinn Féin now coming out as the largest party uh, that also means that there's been a lot of talk on, you know, another the march, a seemingly straightforward now march to Irish unification. And I think you also have the trend in the south of Ireland with Sinn Féin in the last election in 2020 um, had a bit of a surge. And also actually their biggest mistake was not running enough candidates um, after not doing as well as they thought they'd do in 2019. Um, and now, with that in mind, there's the possibility now the next election they could come out um, as the largest party in the South. So those two trends now has people talking about a border poll, which would be basically a referendum on uh, Irish unity on United Ireland. And 
there's yeah basically thought that this is a straightforward march in the next five years now earlier you spoke about we spoke a little bit about scotland um there in 2014 we had a referendum on independence which actually had what was driving that was this working class discontent that wanted to not only break from westminster but actually was driven by this desire for a new type of society free from austerity uh, inequality etc and in that case we put forward the idea we supported independence not tail ending the smp not supporting a capitalist independence not having any illusions that that could really uh, solve the problems of working class people in scotland but putting forward the idea of an independent socialist scotland as part of a socialist federation of england wales and ireland um that was quite a radical campaign a huge kind of step forward and people working class people being radicalized talking about politics but also like quite amount of unity as well um a lot of people might think a border poll might have a similar dynamic uh but i want to ask do you think that's the case um and what would that look like in practice yeah as you said already we've seen you know Sinn Féin kind of argue that preparations need to be put in place to, to move towards a border poll arguing that a debate needs to be had on, on the question uh, of Irish unity and really this is no surprise I mean Irish unity uh, via a border poll uh, is in essence the, the reason for Sinn Féin's uh, existence uh, and their success in the recent election um, here and then and then also their recent electoral successes in the south will be used uh, to push that, that, that question um, but really, this is just the development of a process that's been happening uh, for a while now. As, as Amy mentioned before, the, the demographic shifts in the North uh, uh, have meant that there, there's a sense broadly in society, especially amongst Catholics, that we're moving towards a border poll and that it's inevitable. Um, but but it's not quite as clear cut as, as much of the international media have, have presented it, um, i.e. that the way they've presented it is that, you know, this election means a border poll is imminent. Um, for a start, uh, the Good Friday Agreement means that only the Secretary of State uh, for Northern Ireland which is part of the the British government uh, can can actually call a border poll uh, and that would only happen if some kind of non-defined conditions are are met Um, and I think as we said in the context of a threat of the breakup of the UK the British government is is unlikely to allow this to go to he- go ahead and, and Brandon Lewis who is the, the current Secretary of State has kind of categorically ruled out a border poll in the immediate period um, it's likely, I think, that Sinn Féin will attempt to pressure the British government into making kind of clear what those conditions for a border poll are as part of these preparations um, and also pressure the, the, the government in the Republic of Ireland uh, to push the question, uh, which which has already sort of begun. Um, while the main parties of, of Irish capitalism, uh, Fianna Gael and, and Fianna Fáil, kind of claim that they are, are Republicans, um, the question of Irish unity has, has always been posed by them in, in, in a very abstract way, you know. Um, we can see that begin to change, you know, I, th- I think, but in general, they will be very cautious uh, about a border poll. Um, the Irish capitalist class, in, in reality, does not have much interest in, in unifying uh, Ireland on a capitalist basis, partly due to the economic weakness of, of Irish capitalism, but also also due to the, due to the fears of, of a backlash of, of unionists in the north uh, Leo Varadkar recently said in the doll that um there's actually less support in Stormont for a border poll in the next five years after this election due to the sort of gains made by Alliance who, who wouldn't support that and I think that kind of reflects that the political establishment in the south remains very cautious uh, about the issue of a border poll um 
And I think while many people from a Catholic background see a border poll as, as a way of meeting their, their national aspirations, we have to be very clear, I think, about what a border poll in the North would actually look like. You know, the, the lead up to such an, a referendum would lead to significant uh, sectarian, uh, significant rise in, in sectarian tensions. Uh, and any vote uh, would, in reality, end up being a 50% plus one, either for or against. And it would just be split right down the middle uh, in terms of uh, community divide. Um, and this really does not offer a real lasting democratic solution and would likely only lead to further division and, and even the potential for, for, for conflict. Um, I think a, a narrow vote in favour of the Union would still amount to coercion of nationalists into a state they don't want to be a part of, while a narrow vote of a, a capitalist United Ireland would mean coercion of unionists into a state that they don't want to be a part of. And as Marxists, we oppose all forms of coercion. And, and this also includes uh, the, the, the British government refusing to call a border poll, which itself would be a form of coercion that would, would risk raising sectarian tensions too. I think whether it be the Stormont parties, the, the government in the South or the British government, none of these institutions, uh, once again, have the interest of working class people in mind. And as such, none of them have any real solutions to the divisions in, in society. Um, they only kind of represent the interests of their own national capitalist classes and, and, and landlords. Um, as capitalism is a system based on poverty, exploitation and division really cannot solve the national question in, uh, in Ireland and, and, and heal the divisions within our society. I think in the past, as, as Amy kind of mentioned earlier, there have been important examples of working class people across the sectarian divide coming together through the trade union movement, for example, to fight uh, in their own interests on a class basis. And, and those, those examples can really break down sectarian uh, division because a united struggle uh, of working class people uh, against this exploitative capitalist system really is the only force that can actually challenge uh, sectarianism. Yeah, I think, you know, what you're saying here connects really well, I think, to another element of these elections, which uh, you talked a little bit about before, about alliance as well. But I think generally what was really clear in these elections was that it wasn't just the sectarian issues, which obviously we don't want to minimise. And uh, the issue of a border poll as well is, 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 can be a real kind of trigger for even more sectarianism. But... At the same time, we saw these elections really focused on the cost of living issue, which I think, uh, you know, hit in Northern Ireland a lot. And I think around the world, everyone who was watching it can relate to how terrible this issue is. Um, and I think that also connects to another kind of trend that we're seeing in Northern Ireland of uh, this uh, kind of uh, unionization uh, kind of surge, a lot of strikes, a lot of industrial action we've been seeing uh, in the last few months. So I was wondering, first of all, if you can tell us a little bit about that element of the elections, but not just the elections, just also what kind of strikes have we seen? What kind of unionizations have we seen? And also whether you think this is uh, going to continue even after these elections? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the cost of living is the crisis is, is putting massive pressure on, on working class people. Um, a, a recent poll before the election has showed that a third of people here would be unable to pay an unexpected bill of, of £300, uh, while close to one in, one in ten uh, reported that they're skipping meals regularly because you know the, the, the choice for them is between eating or, or, or heating. Um, but this is really just the extension of a crisis that has been developing for years for working class people. 
I mean, Northern Ireland has the lowest discretionary uh, income in, in the UK. And with the slashing of welfare uh, in, in, in recent times and, and pay cuts uh, specifically in the, in the public sector, but stagnant wages more generally, these have had a, a really uh, a bad impact here. I mean, Northern Ireland has some of the, the, the most impoverished areas in all of all of Europe. Um, but, but as you say, you know, working class people here are beginning to fight back against these conditions, providing really a, a powerful warning, I think, to the bosses that working class people just won't take it anymore. And I think we will we'll see this dynamic develop potentially all over the world. Uh, we've seen something of a, of a strike wave in the north with, with thousands of workers participating in strikes, ballots or, or other forms of industrial action in the last few months. Um, many of these workers were being applauded as, as essential workers when society was in lockdown. Uh, but are now being offered uh, by their bosses real-term pay cuts. Um, for example, 11 local authorities, including refuse workers and, and leisure centre staff, uh, went on strike recently uh, alongside uh, housing executive workers after they rejected uh, what was really a scandalous pay offer of 1.75%, uh, which is obviously a real-term pay cut amidst mass massive uh, inflation and really has just come after years and years and years of consistent pay cuts um, and uh, also in, in the public sector uh, public transport workers in, in TransLink have threatened strike action uh, saying they, they would grind services to a halt after they rejected a 3% pay rise um, and that, that strike has been called uh, off now due to negotiations with, with management which are uh, ongoing um, but it similarly reflects the willingness of workers to take action you know and they were able to pressure management uh, to get a, a, a better offer but we'll see how that develops going forward uh, health workers as well have uh, overwhelmingly rejected a 3% pay offer by like 92% uh, of them voting against it. And they're hinting at industrial action uh, later in the year. Um, but even in the private sector, many workplaces have engaged in industrial action. Workers at, at Caterpillar, for example, have taken strike action to fight uh, for decent pay increases uh, from an employer that is a, a multinational uh, company that rakes in revenues of, of billions of pounds by ruthlessly exploiting its, its workforce around the world. Um, and these workers are now into their sixth week i think of, of strike action and are likely to, to continue striking for for many weeks to come education workers as well being on strike i mean see just recently we saw management at ulster university here effectively engage in a, in a lockout of workers who were planning a, a marking boycott as a form of legitimate industrial uh, action to protect their, their pay and, and pensions and to challenge the increasing casualization of, of their employment um as well, even gig economy workers, uh, workers for Deliveroo, Just Eat and Uber Eats went on strike in March uh, against low pay and bogus self-employment. It was, it was a great, really energetic uh, picket line. Um, and this was the first strike of its kind in Belfast, the first gig economy strike. And, and I think it really shows the potential for, for layers of, you know, quote unquote, unorganized workers to fight back and, and start to get organized because of the, the, the pressure of this crisis. Um, I think what's really significant about a lot of these strikes is that pay offers or conditions that would have been accepted and de de deemed acceptable in years gone by uh, are now being overwhelmingly rejected, you know, which I think really shows that workers are just hitting the limit of how far they can be squeezed, you know. Yeah, and I think we have kind of like this very unusual opportunity that sometimes uh, uh, in, in, in the show uh, that, you know, we're talking a lot about these opportunities and also talking a lot about the criticism that we have for the parties of the establishment uh, in this election. But we actually have here on the show a candidate uh, who uh, ran in the election. And um, to those of you who don't know, Amy uh, uh, ran in the election, as well as Neil Moore, another uh, member of ours in Northern Ireland. 
And I wanted, because your campaign, Amy, was really focused on these uh, worker struggles and on, you know, creating this uh, uh, cross-community unity as well. And I was wondering, first of all, kind of, what was the impact of these points? Like when you talk to people on the street, uh, 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 like how important was it to them and to the campaign as well? But also what are the, like what, what is the difference between what you and Neil put forward and what the other parties put forward in the election? Yeah, so um, on the question of uh, supporting the striking workers and, and, and pointing to the, the workers as an example, an important example of what we can do to really change the, the current cost of living situation, it was incredibly well received. Um, I mean, a lot of people, like on one hand, there is a lot of apathy actually about the elections and about like what would actually be achieved. Um, we've seen a cycle of... Um, a cycle of these elections at this point where there's like big promises that something the big promises by the main parties who have been in government for literally decades will be like this time we're really going to do something i promise and then they don't so on like on one hand a lot of people were kind of fed up but then on the other hand people were saying but actually look at these people um look at the you know the the bus drivers or the local authority workers you know at least they're actually fighting for what they want you know there is an acknowledgement that actually the government is not going to step in and give a pay rise to anybody and that it was actually going to take um that type of action so it was inspiring to talk to people it was inspiring when we're talking about all the time talking about the need to unify across like Get, unite across, you know, community uh, divisions in, in 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 our shared class interests. Whilst we're always talking about that, it was really significant to actually say, I mean, look, these guys are actually doing that right now, you know, in the context of a polarised election, in the context of a really difficult living situation for most working class people. These people are cutting across that, you know, so that was a really important, um, important part of the election. I think actually it was, it was quite funny. At one point I was out with the uh, picket lines with the local authority workers and they were marching up to um, one of the the main offices for the local council. And like there was Sinn Féin representatives meeting with the Chamber of Commerce across the street who pretended they couldn't see or hear the workers chanting, you know. Um, and I think actually, usually you would get tokenistic uh, visits, picket lines would get tokenistic visits from um, establishment politicians who haven't done anything to help them, but who want to, you know, a nice picture for the elections. But I think, this time, I don't know, politicians must have been seeing that they would very quickly get chased off um, as well because there were none of those types of visits. Um, but obviously, um, on other issues aside from from uh, strike, from the specific strike action, raising support for, for the strikers, uh, we also um, took... Uh, a stand, like we were also talking about what was actually needed to fight uh, the cost of, you know, this cost of living crisis, rather than just speechifying about it and making vague promises about like minor pay rises. We said that uh, the very minimum of what was necessary in the media was a £15 per, pound per hour minimum wage, as well as above inflation pay rises, which for most workers is a double uh, double digit pay rise. We also call, were calling for the nationalisation of the energy companies under public democratic control to actually kick out the profiteers who are fueling this crisis in uh, in for working class people. I mean, there was an article came out the other week that says energy price hikes were here to stay for another six years. And that's absolutely terrifying for the majority of us who are already living on the absolute brink of things. Um, and again, that's that's a manufactured 
crisis when you look at um, the amount of money that these shareholders and these CEOs are actually taking home whilst our uh, bills are skyrocketing. We're also calling for rent controls as well and, and affordable housing. Um, uh, proper like quality affordable housing as well as uh, social housing the environment was obviously a really big question um in the local area where i'm from there's a, a private company that's seeking permission to to gold mine in the local area um and like one of the one, one of the ways that they're trying to get permission from the local community to be allowed this gold mine is that they're promising that it'll bring jobs now the amount of permanent jobs that is actually um suggested is incredibly low like some uh figures are, are as low as 12 permanent jobs you know so in contrast to that we're arguing that actually you know the question of jobs versus uh healthy environment shouldn't be counterposed these things are actually um can actually become one in the same so we're we're rather than rather than trying to support the gold mine pretend the gold mine was the only source for jobs we were saying actually uh it's time to build you know create green jobs with living wages and some of those jobs could have included the likes of uh, reinstating the railways in the northwest and uh, building actually free frequent accessible public transport links which are very non-existent out in 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 northwest and rural ireland as well as obviously the construction of like renewable energy infrastructure and stuff like that defending the nhs was a big thing rather than you know again the establishment parties will always at the elections talk about how they need to defend the nhs and then they get elected and they go back to the assembly and slowly uh push in outsourcing measures and cuts uh, towards these types of services and we also um a big 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 issues that we that we wanted to talk about was actually challenging sexism gender-based violence and other forms of oppression especially whilst there's an absolute tirade against lgbtq rights at the minute especially trans rights um so we were talking about um abortion access free on the nhs for all who need it public investment into uh, services for gender-based violence and again this question of like adequate social housing to actually deal with people fleeing you know dangerous and unsupportive households and as well of course one of the main things we were talking about was the need to challenge sectarianism by building this united working class movement that could fight for all the other things that we were talking about um, as well as the likes of integrated secular education and again just to go back to my first point, the striking workers obviously provided a really important concrete example of that type of action that we were talking about here and that type of action that we said that, you know, socialist representatives should use their positions to actually build and that can, that can do so even in the context of, of polarised elections. Um, yeah. I think we've covered a lot here uh, and the many contradictory features actually of this election because on the one hand, we saw the sectarian nature of that and really the, the processes that are reflected but are also accelerating of a potential towards more sectarian division. But on the other hand, we saw the real potential for unity for Catholics and Protestants to come together across the sectarian divide and join the common struggle against their common exploitation and oppression. And I think it's so important that, Amy, uh, you and Neil made th those issues, such as Central Party, your campaign, and the fact you got a good response, does give a very like optimistic perspective of the potential that is there for this type of joint struggle. But with that in mind, I want to ask, what does the Socialist Party in Northern Ireland put forward as a political programme uh, in terms of pointing a way forward to a lasting solution uh, for the national question? Yeah, so big question to end on. I mean, obviously, the first thing we have to acknowledge, uh, and that this is what Chris uh, alluded to in, in the earlier question about the border poll, is that actually 
first of all, capitalism has no solution to this question, regardless of the options that it like so-called options that it gives working class people whether it's the current status quo or a cat or or a different capitalist state to exist under um that's that's not a solution and actually it can help inflame sectarian tensions um but like in contrast to that there's actually so much that indicates a really strong possibility of of building a movement to challenge uh, sectarian forces and to actually push back the prospect of of a future conflict. Because um, like, although the likes of the DUP and Sinn Féin do remain electorally dominant, there's still huge cynicism towards these parties because of their sectarian bickering, but also because of the austerity they've implemented, the attacks they've launched on working class people, and you know the corruption scandals and, incomp- and just how incompetent they are as well. Um, and, and whilst that's whilst that's on the one hand, as we said, there's been really important movements of young people across the sectarian divide in the recent past, whether it's in um, support for marriage equality, which actually saw 20,000 people take to the streets in Belfast, which isn't an insignificant number here, and um, also in support of the question of abortion rights and in opposition to institutional sexism, to racism, to the threat of climate change. Um, and these movements obviously aren't um, isolated in in the north, but they reflect these broader upheavals which have swept the globe. Um, uh, and these movements aren't narrow; they aren't inward looking, but they actually reflect the broader rejection of this system of capitalism that's in its decay. Which means the support for the ideas of of socialism, albeit in in a confused form, are actually on the rise internationally. And that means also they're on the rise here in Northern Ireland. Um, and as well, of course, when we're talking about this, what, what can bring lasting change, a lasting solution to the question of sectarianism in, in the North, we have to take this context of this really significant strike wave that we're witnessing right now. And it's vital to understand that this the trade union movement here has huge potential in actually forming the solution to the national question. The trade unions unite, um, like represent over 200,000 workers from all backgrounds in Northern Ireland um, in their common interests as working class people. And that that movement numerically dwarfs all the sectarian organizations you know it's in the workplace where you might meet uh, someone from a different community background to you for the first time because of the nature of uh, uh, separation of our, of our communities and so it's where you can learn actually that you have more in common with your catholic or protestant co-worker than you actually do with the boss of any background um, and throughout the history of of the north uh, of north of the northern state the trade union movement has been really crucial like it's been a really crucial vehicle through which the working class has actually acted to challenge sectarian forces at really key points uh, in time um for instance uh, in in the early 19 19- 90s the the there was an initiative that came almost universally from the rank and file trade union activists to actually strike and hold mass demonstrations against sectarian atrocities of both republican and loyalist um character um and in that they like really powerfully expressed uh, the desire of working class people to end conflict to end this bloodshed in both communities and they played a really important role in actually pushing the paramilitaries and the political establishment towards ceasefires and towards this political you know settlement um and it can seem actually that the, the question of national identity and its expressions will always you know be contentious and impossible to overcome it can really seem that way especially if 
you know, especially on the basis of capitalism, especially if you don't set your sights beyond the confines of this system, which is a system that relies on exploitation, oppression and division. And when you think that's that, that this that system is all there is, it can seem daunting. You can start to think, actually, there probably isn't um, a, a, a future beyond division. But of course, that's entirely not true. And actually, um, United Struggle has time and time again, both in the North and internationally, diminished and removed, you know, divisions amongst working class people uh, and the same can happen in the future again. We, so the Socialist Party, the ISA in Ireland, we say that actually a united struggle uh, for socialist uh, future would have a really transformative effect and again, demonstrate in practice the common interests of working class people from all backgrounds. And it's in that context that actually workers can begin to break down the barriers um, between their communities and start to work on these solutions to contentious questions. Um, and again, despite the threat of polarized, like sectarian polarization, the common period as well will also has created really important opportunities to actually build uh, socialist organizations, to build a, a unified struggle of working class people. You know, there, as I said, there's already growing uh, openness to socialist ideas. There's already more people on the streets um, in, in taking strike action than the entire time I've been alive. Um, and again, the, the economic crisis and the decay of capitalism will only deepen this, this sentiment amongst normal people. Um, but these opportunities have to be seized, you know, um, otherwise they can just slip by. And uh, unfortunately, socialists and trade unions have let these opportunities slip by in the past, which, you know, created the likes of partition, which happened in the 1960s, which unfortunately led to the outbreak of the troubles. So to make sure that history doesn't repeat itself in the negative, it's really important for Marxists like ourselves to actually forge a strong revolutionary force that can bring those lessons of our past struggles um, into the struggles of today to help point a way forward. So just to finish, I just want to finish on a quote by um, Peter Haddon, who is a, a Marxist, a theoretician of, of the ISA in Ireland. So Peter Haddon said, um, socialism means taking the major industry and all key services into public ownership and running them democratically with need replacing profit as the motive. It means no privilege deletes, only the right of the people themselves to manage their own affairs. It means creating an international brotherhood and sisterhood, a unity based on respect of difference and in which all national and minority rights would be guaranteed. It's the unity of the working class built in the struggle for such a society that will actually solve the national question in Ireland. I think that's crystal clear picture of what we need. Excellent. Uh, thanks very much and a great way to finish, Amy. Um, I do want to actually one last question, uh, mm -hmm. and I think these we've these elections uh, in Northern Ireland have often been referred to correctly so as historic. But another recent historic mm -hmm. event in Northern Ireland history, of course, has been the last season of Derry Girls, and particularly the last episode. Which don't worry, there won't be any spoilers. Please no, I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, but what? <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry about that. But what I do want to ask is, as Marxists in Northern Ireland, uh, politically. Um, yes or no in terms of what Derry Girls puts forward? Uh, if we're talking the last 10 minutes of the last season of Derry Girls, just forget about it. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, well, as we said, uh, no spoilers, but yeah, hopefully uh, those fans of, of Derry Girls uh, will also get a lot out of this uh, episode as well and putting things in their context. And I think it is uh, going to be extremely helpful to navigate a difficult period ahead but also uh, have given us all a very good insight in some of these important struggles amongst workers and youth 
uh, that really are pointing the way forward. So I want to thank Chris and Amy for um, their excellent analysis and insight into uh, this recent period. So thanks very much. I am here in Stockholm in the climate demos for the Stockholm Plus 50 uh, convent, the UN Convention and I'm here with about 50 members uh, of the International Socialist Alternative from all around the world. Uh, we've come to intervene in the climate movement here uh, to protest uh, uh, outside of uh, the conference. Obviously the UN is celebrating 50 years of uh, climate activity, whatever that means. Uh, we, I mean, climate crisis is still going on. I don't really know what they've done in, the, in those 50 years that there is to celebrate, uh, but this is why we're here protesting uh, for the climate. And the shout out of the week this week is going to go out to all of the members of ISA who came to the protest in Stockholm to support our Swedish section, obviously the Swedish section as well, but also everyone who joined us at the protest and also the rally. Uh, even if you just watched us uh, live, uh, 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 on Zoom, uh, we are sending a huge shout out, obviously, to every climate activist. If you want real system change, we need an alternative, and this alternative has to be socialism. So join ISA. And uh, this is it for this week. So thank you very much, and see you in a couple of weeks. This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When we fight! When we fight! When they fight! Solidarity!